Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is El Bruno, Managing Director of the Techstars Western Union FinTech Accelerator in Denver. El has been in the tech startup world for almost 20 years as a founder, executive, and investor with many consumer tech companies, most notably Trunk Club in Chicago, which was acquired by Nordstrom in 2014. I originally met Elle a couple years ago when she moved here from Chicago and was immediately impressed by her positive energy and desire to share her experience with the Colorado tech ecosystem, especially as a champion for other female founders. Elle is an active and angel investor, and we've been fortunate to have the opportunity to work with her on Suna and hopefully many more. Elle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, everyone. Would love to hear a little bit more about what you're up to with Techstars. Sure. So uh, our 2021 cohort just finished up their their 13-week accelerator towards the end of October. But giving you a little background on that, I run the Techstars Western Union Accelerator. So I focus on investing in early stage fintechs, mostly seed. And our class this year was fantastic. We had representation from five different countries and pretty much everything across fintech that you can think of from financial wellness to a SIM card to crypto marketplace, just to kind of give you an example of, of the breadth of companies that were involved. And I know that um, you, while you do have a lot of experience in tech and investing, I think this is your first foray into fintech. So what were you doing before and how'd you make your way into this? Sure. It's a great question. Uh, I spent 18 years as a startup operator, which I sometimes joke, I, I was a glutton for punishment. So started my first company Back in 2004, it was called expressdrop.com. We were taking advantage of the eBay marketplace, sold overstock and did liquidation for high-end retailers. And then from there, I went on to work for three venture-backed companies all in the consumer tech space. And I worked on the revenue and sales side. So helped build a, a startup by the name of Trunk Club, which was a men's outfitting service headquartered in Chicago, where, where I was living at the time. We built that business pretty quickly to $100 million in revenue over three years. We were fortunate enough to be acquired by Nordstrom back in 2014. And then I went on to another consumer startup called Luxury Garage Sale. And from there, direct consumer furniture brand called Interior Define. And uh, all, the, all the meanwhile was doing uh, angel investing on the personal side starting back in 2015. On that note, Personally, I invest only in female-founded and co-founded startups. So I've, I've invested across all different functions and verticals there. And then in my spare time, I try to lead a, a couple of syndicates as well. Got it. That's great. That's an awesome variety of, of experiences um, that you've had. What do you think about fintech? Like what brought you to, to fintech from consumer goods? Yes. And I didn't even answer your question. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, good. There's too much to cover. There's too much to cover. Didn't even answer your question. Um, so what do I think about fintech? I have absolutely loved being in fintech. You know, I feel like timing is everything. It is such a fascinating space right now. You know, much of it was sped up because of COVID and just kind of the buying behaviors of consumers. So we're seeing so much in payments. That's really fascinating. But 
also just with Gen Z, I talk about this often being the first digital first generation, we're just seeing a lot of new technologies emerging, especially in fintech. So I will say fintech has become a very broad definition. Uh, there's a lot of companies, you know, in sure tech, prop tech, everybody's kind of you know, sitting in that space today, but I've absolutely loved it. You know, so much of it is about consumer behaviors and kind of what makes fintech work. And so that's been a really fun transition for me into the space. So Elle, uh, you know, like me, you're relatively new to the Denver ecosystem. I think you've been here a little over two years. We'd just love to hear what attracted you to tech in Denver and some of the exciting things that you're seeing here within the ecosystem. Yeah, again, timing is everything. And moved here for, for personal reasons with my husband and my three children and was just immediately taken by how powerful and, you know, diverse the startup ecosystem was here. I've told this story before, but I remember going to startup week because this was right before COVID started. So September 2019 here. And I was blown away. I attended Chicago Startup Week many times and no offense to Chicago Startup Week, but this kind of blew it out of the water. And just to see the attendance and the commitment that the startup community had in Denver, I really thought, wow, this is an overlooked startup scene. And so my initial thesis when I moved here was actually, I want to invest for a fund on one of the coasts and source deal flow here in Denver, because as you both know, running Range Ventures, there's a ton of opportunity. And there's a lot to be said for finding those harder to find companies and, and, and not getting into the valuation wars, etc. So uh, really impressed with the startup scene here. Also very impressed with the community and how open armed they were when, when I came here and, you know, very different than, the, you know, maybe the, the tier one city mentality. It's like, what can you do for me? Every person I reached out to, including both of you, were very willing just to have conversations to help me navigate the market. Uh, and, and that was something I hadn't seen in, in my uh, 18 years of professionalism. And, and, you know, now that you've had some time in the market here, are there one or two areas where the, the Denver tech scene is strongest or where do you see it succeeding the most long term? I mean, it's so hard to say, right? I'd be a billionaire if I actually knew the answer to that question. But, um, you know, I, I know we're definitely known for a lot of, a lot of things in space and robotics. And, you know, to be honest, that's, that's not my wheelhouse. But what we're seeing is an influx of talent, which I think will ultimately, you know, and a bunch of HQ2s are coming here. And I think kind of that's the recipe where we'll see some incredible companies emerge in the next few years. And then, you know, with Guild and, you know, a couple other unicorns that, that are finally emerging, you know, hopefully soon we'll see Suna there and Havenly. And that's when I think we'll, we'll really start to see kind of what this market is capable of, right? Because it's all about reinvesting into the ecosystem. So it's like some senior software engineer from Suna, hopefully one day makes a couple million dollars off of Suna and then he or she is going to go and start their next thing, right? Using the money and or they're going to go and start reinvesting in the ecosystem. So as you all know, uh, as you both know, that's kind of the name of the game. As far as like a category, I don't, I haven't seen anything emerge personally, but I, I could be missing the boat on that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things we think is, is strongest about the ecosystem long term is it's not dependent on one vertical, right? It's not like, oh, Denver, Colorado is biotech only, right? We've got great diversity of 
talent in different industries. Uh, so I think it's more robust long term. And one of the things I, I personally feel is I think you get really interesting, innovative ideas at the intersection of multiple industries that often lead to some of the biggest companies long term. So I'm really excited about the diversity of skills and industries that we have in this ecosystem. Yeah. And just the influx of people from the West Coast that we're seeing, you know, it, it just speaks to that diversification. And, and Ellie, you mentioned Suna, obviously a company we, we're all involved in and, and very excited about. What's one company here that you're not involved in personally that you're really excited about? Think what they're doing is super interesting. Yeah, actually a consumer company I was just looking at called Butterflies. They're in the earbud space. So B-U-D-E-R-F-L-Y-S. Um, I, I've definitely started tracking them. It's interesting. It's If you think about you know the Apple earbuds, they're super uncomfortable. They don't fit every ear. Uh, and so while it feels like they're a major incumbent, there's a ton of opportunity there. And so I, I love my butterflies and they're super early, but I'm definitely tracking them. So Elle, let's jump into why we're here. Uh, your biggest lesson. would love to hear what the biggest lesson is you've learned over you know, the multiple different startups you've worked at, all the different companies you've seen. What is it? And can you give our listeners a few examples of how you learned it? Sure. I can't can't help but laugh because I have so many. It was really hard for me to think about what is one I could share, A, and B, like what is one that's appropriate um, to share as well without... We can do an extended cut podcast with, you know, the inappropriate lessons as well, too, that that we'll release after. I, I was like, what's PG that won't scar anyone for life? So... Because I've worked for four startups, so I've seen and experienced so, so much. And, you know, you're grateful for the good, you're grateful for the bad. But I have learned a lot of lessons the hard way. But one I wanted to focus on actually goes back to eighth grade. When I was um, a soccer player, I was really into sports growing up. And well, this will make sense in a minute. And I uh, didn't have we didn't have a boy soccer team at my at my school or sorry, a girl soccer team. And we only had a boy soccer team. So I was at home one day complaining to my parents about this. And they said, well, why don't you just go ask the athletic director if you can join the boy soccer team? And I was like, really? I can do that? I can go ask him? And they said, yeah, why not? So I like marched into his office the next day. And Mr. Solstein was his name, I think. Uh, I was like, I, w- I want to play in the boys soccer team. And he looked at me and he's like, all right, I guess there's no reason you can't. And... I played on the team. It was great, a great, a great season. But I realized then that was kind of my first lesson. Like, wait, you don't know unless you ask for something. You know, you you don't know what you don't know, and right. And that's kind of like the moral of the story here. I'm not articulating it well, but you never know unless you ask. And that carried with me like in many parts of my career. I remember my next job, this other person next to me got promoted and I didn't. And I went up to the manager. I said, you know, I was really interested in that role. Why was I not up for it? And she said, you never reached out to me and said that you wanted the promotion. And that was a huge aha moment for me. I was like, again, you have to put yourself out there and ask for it, even though in your head, you know, you're doing a great job you know, you should be the next person for it. If you don't put yourself out there and let that be known, it's going to be a challenge. And and I've really felt that kind of stuck with me throughout my career, maybe not even just asking for a promotion, but I was at one of my startups to be remain nameless where it was, you know, it was very male heavy and we didn't really have any female executives to look up to. 
And I went to my CEO and I said, you know, could we put together an event for women in leadership? I'd really like to give this 250 female team, you know, some people to look up to that are their same gender. And he said, yeah. So put it together. And so, you know, we ended up putting together this quarterly series. So it's a super simple lesson, but it's you never know unless you ask. Yeah. And I think, Al, that's that's so relevant for people who are building startups because every day to startup is is doing something that hasn't been done or someone said you couldn't do or, or shouldn't be done. And I think great startup founders are comfortable continually asking that question, whether it's a new customer, whether it's trying to hire someone or, or even internally, right? Like you don't know what you, you can do or achieve or get permission, right? Maybe permission is the wrong word um, until you ask and try to do it. Yeah. Right. And that's what a startup is. Exactly. A a thousand percent. You know, a lot of my founders that I work with, um, there's, there's kind of two things they don't recognize when they come into building a company, because oftentimes they're like, I just have this awesome idea and I am very technically equipped to do it. But with being a founder, you A, have to be really vulnerable, right? Because you are constantly being put up for rejection to your point, Chris. And then you also have to have sales skills to some degree. Like sales skills ring true across every aspect of being a CEO. And right, and you know, they always say in sales, no is the second best answer you can hear. This all kind of rolls up to the same concept of you just, you got to put yourself out there. A thousand percent, you got to ask for it. I mean, think about fundraising, right? What you know? What are the stats today? A hundred no's before one yes, or maybe they're getting better in more favor of the founder. But I digress. Yeah, it's about putting yourself out there and seeing what will stick. And uh, if you don't put yourself out there, you're never going to know. Yeah, L. Actually, one of the criteria that Adam and I have at Range for for founders we back is you have to be the company's best salesperson, right? And we look at it across three dimensions. I, th- I think you highlighted most of them. One, you have to be the company's best salesperson to fundraise, yep. right? You have to be the company's best salesperson to recruit, right? And you have to be the company's best salesperson to get the first customers, right? Because if, if you can't raise money, if you can't get customers, you can't hire people, you are never going to build a venture scale business. And so it's one of the criteria that we look for at the very top of our list when we're investing, you know, pre-seed and seed. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear too, because Adam and I have our own ways we try to judge it and get to that. But you see so many founders, especially through the Techstars program. What are some of the ways you try to gauge if a founder is a great salesperson or is willing to sort of ask the questions or push for the thing that, that people normally won't do? So as far as kind of the vulnerability component, you know, something I, I, I've been known to be is very straightforward throughout my career. And I, I really try to ask, I should say, you know, questions that others may consider uncomfortable, but just to kind of test their ability to stand on their feet and, you know, take feedback really well. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll kind of immediately pinpoint a hole in the business and ask them to defend it in, in some regard and see just the responsiveness to that. And are they super defensive and, you know, kind of rambling on, or are they able to have that conversation and, and be articulate around their answers? And that to me is being able to show vulnerability. As far as sales skills go, I just talk about, you know, I ask kind of pretty 
obvious questions. How did you close your first 10 customers? Or how did you close your first customer? Because if you really get under the hood, a lot of times it's, oh, it was a connection of my Uncle Sam's, right? Versus I knocked on 100 doors and, you know, got convinced this person after three months, you know, to work with me. And, and that those are two different ways of closing sales. You can leave it to yourself to decide which one is better. That, that's around the sales skills. And also, I think something that's really important because not every founder is going to be a great salesperson. It's their willingness to recognize that and to bring on a co-founder or a partner who is. And that's where the vulnerability piece comes into play. So recognizing your weak spots is really important and, and filling in, in those weak spots, quote unquote, not weak spots, but you know what I mean? As we say, those opportunities uh, and filling them in and being okay doing that. I think one of the interesting things when you talk about not being afraid to ask for what you want, right? A big reason why somebody isn't going to do that is because they're worried about rejection. Yep. They're worried about being told no or, or being embarrassed. How have you handled that in your career, right? How, how is that? Are there any, any advice, piece of advice you give to founders about rejection's okay? It's part of the game. Yeah, I was just... I was just talking to one of my founders yesterday about this, who is in the midst of fundraising and having a bit of a hard time. And we talked a lot about not letting that define you or your business that oftentimes in this fun, this crazy fundraising rat race we're in right now, you know, it's about finding just, you just need the one that gets what you're doing, that gets who you are as a company. And it's a very intimate relationship at the end of the day. So you want to find the right one. And it doesn't necessarily mean you don't have product market fit. It means that investor doesn't maybe understand the geography that you're, that you are in and wants to stay away from it. So super high level, but a don't let rejection define who you are. There's so many ingredients to the recipe of a great startup and fundraising is just one of them. And then, you know, I, again, working in sales, my whole career, I'm so used to rejection and you talk, I often talk about like the roller coaster of sales, right? When you close a sale, it is the biggest high. And then when you, when you don't close a sale, you, you have this low. But when you're able to focus, uh, as we say in sales, on the process and not the prize, you kind of can just sit in that, in that middle ground where you're not too overly emotional in, in either direction. And so focusing on the process and not the prize is really the way to look at things. I want to probe on one thing uh, you talked about with with fundraising and particularly in this market. And we see this too, right? For a lot of founders right now, these are the best of times. The valuations are crazy. They've got you know many, many term sheets and investors throwing themselves at them. And people see that in the news, other founders, and they think, hey, that should happen to me, right? That should happen to everybody. But that's not the case for most founders, obviously. What advice do you give founders today around hey, this is just how things go. You've got to knock on a lot of doors. Fundraising is really, really hard for 90% of startups versus, you know, actually you really do need to rethink some things here, right? You're getting told no for a good reason and and you actually need to go back to the drawing board. How do you um, help founders think through that decision? Yeah. So whenever I'm stressed out about, about this, anything, you know, professionally related, I always revert back to data because data does not lie. Data is so important. And when you're fundraising, it is really, really important that you are collecting data from every single rejection in order to determine any sort of patterns, right? Because we all suffer from recency bias also. So whatever that last investor said about, oh, we think your CAC is is too high or, or whatever it is, you know, that's going to sit in your head. And is that just that one investor 
who sticks on that point? Or is this a real data point? And so it's really important to collect everything you can, extract everything you can from investors along the way to determine what next steps to take. So that's definitely, I advise that something I advise them on. It's also quality over quality or sorry, quality over quantity these days. And so doing your research on your investors and in talking to investors that you know are within your investment thesis versus getting 50 rejects from, you know, an investor that just doesn't invest in, in your stage or your geo or whatever it is, is really, is really the way to go. So it's about doing the upfront work. I totally agree. Something that I've seen that I've been really impressed with, with a handful of founders that we've actually passed on their their startup. They've come back to me and said, hey, hey, you know, really appreciate the feedback you gave. I know you're out. I'm not ever going to try to persuade you to, to invest in our startup, but I could really value you in our corner as providing some advice as I do continue to fundraise, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I think, been awesome. It's been awesome vulnerability. And I've been willing to jump in. I think other investors are willing to jump in every time. And so that's the advice I give to founders is make sure to, to your point, make sure that you've got somebody in your corner, whether it be an investor you just met who you hit it off with, whether it be a friend or mentor who's raised money before that can give you the real scoop and say, okay, yeah, the investor is saying no for this reason. Here's what they really mean. Right. Yeah. And having that in your, uh, having that person in your corner, I think can make all the difference. I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, and that's the beauty of tech stars, not to plug it, but really it's just getting a bunch of people in your corner who you can kind of show that vulnerability with and get that that radical candor from. And, you know, I exact same thing, Adam. I couldn't agree more. Yesterday, the same founder I'm speaking to, I set up a couple of calls with him for him with investors to just do a mock pitch because we're trying to figure out what is the crux of the issue. And, you know, you need those real raw conversations to recognize that. Absolutely. And and I appreciate you plugging Techstars because it's such a great <laughs> resource for entrepreneurs and been a big catalyst for the local community. Al, thanks so much for, for joining us. Where can our listeners follow what you're up to? Yeah, I am pretty active on LinkedIn. So you can find me there. It's uh, My name is El Navarro Bruno on LinkedIn. So ping me. Thanks so much. Look forward to seeing the next uh, Techstars class you put together. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Take thanks, care. Al.